Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. I cannot believe that just happened. I know. Right here. On the street. I can't believe it. I don't usually approach famous people, but when I see, when I saw them, I couldn't pass on that opportunity. She is one of my favorite comedians. Seriously. That was so generous of him. And she invited us to their show. I love when a comedian as great as him does drama. So now we have to go and get tickets. Sounds like it's going to be an early morning for us. It'll be worth it. I'll head over to the Barrymore first thing in the morning and grab whatever tickets I can. Amazing. I'm beyond excited. Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the divisive show, Race. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Let me ask you a question. What does a guilty man look like? The show we are going to be discussing today asks that very question and many more. Of course, we are talking about the dramatic play Race. This inspired and provoking drama bursts onto Broadway and not only asked questions within the show itself, but forced those questions onto its audience as they left the theater. But before we delve into the story, let's do some quick groundwork. The show's design team was as follows. Written and directed by David Mamet, set design by Santa Laquasto, costume design by Tom Broker, lighting design by Brian McDevitt. The show began previews at the Ethel Barrymore Theater on November 16th, 2009. It would officially open on December 6th of that year and run for 297 performances, closing on August 21st, 2010. The producers announced on April 21st, 2010 that the play had recouped its investment, making it the first new play to recoup on Broadway in the 2009-2010 season. The show would be nominated for one Tony Award that season. One last interesting note regarding the background of the show. The author and director, David Mamet, stated that the intended theme of the show is race and the lies we tell each other on the subject. So let's get into our story. A racially charged sex crime takes place, which leads to charges being made against Charles Strickland, a wealthy resident in his town. 
He quickly goes to his friend, Jack Lawson, a criminal attorney, and retains him to defend his case. Lawson agrees and begins to rely on help from a young black attorney he calls Susan, working in his three-lawyer office. As evidence and police reports begin to accumulate for the preparation of the defense of the case, Jack begins to suspect deep flaws in the police investigation of the crime scene. He notes that although the crime reports clearly identify the crime victim as having worn a red sequin dress on the night of the sex crime, that something is wrong with the details in the police reports. From his personal experience, he explains to his fellow law partners, Susan and Brown, how fragile sequin dresses are in general, and how even the slightest incident of jarring or simple out on the town wearing of a sequin dress inevitably leads to sequins popping and falling off almost without any provocation whatsoever. However, the police reports, although otherwise seeming to be thorough, are completely absent of any information about any red sequins being missing or laying around the victim's room in question where an apparent extensive struggle had taken place. The other law partners are impressed by the startling omission, and all three partners come to the conclusion, with increasing invisible evidence before each other, that the omission by the police is very deeply flawed. They are convinced that the credibility of the police reports cannot withstand questioning in the courtroom. All three lawyers feel their client will be exonerated. The next day, however, news comes to the lawyers that a maid in the hotel has remembered that she saw sequins under the bed. In the process of further interviews with his client, discussions with his partner, and with Susan, Jack becomes aware of even further complications in the case. The ethnic prejudices of his old friend whom he is defending turn out to be highly suspect and pejorative. More importantly, he begins to suspect that Susan's hand in the activities taking place in the law office after receiving the case may be tainted. Susan turns out to have strong feelings about racially motivated sex crimes, and she is far from unbiased in the representation of the case. As Jack continues to quiz her and challenge her on her own beliefs, it becomes clear that Susan had come to play a part in the statement of the maid materializing overnight and invalidating the fragile sequin theory the partners were planning to use. It becomes clear by the final curtain that Susan has leaked the information concerning the basis of Jack's planned defense, the fragile sequin theory, to the police and or DA. It becomes clear that Susan has done this in order to influence the outcome in the matter of justice involving a question of bigotry and of race. The, the end. end. Now let us discuss the show and what we like, what we think needs improvement, and all the tra-la-las. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll kick things off. I'll tee off here. I thought the script was absolutely brilliant. I love the message. The messaged. I love the <laughs> message behind it and the questions that not only it asked during the show, but the questions that you were left asking when you left. You know, um... 
I've, I've brought this play up a lot of times when I've been talking to people. And um, one of the questions that left a lasting impression with me that they ask in the show is, what does a guilty man look like? You know, because they have this whole scene where Susan says, well, he's guilty. Well, why is he guilty? He just looks guilty. And the character of... Jack. Jack, thank you. I was like, Eddie Izzard. No. Jack goes, well, what does a guilty man look like? And there's this long pause. And it makes you think, how many times have we seen a Law & Order show or even just real life when you see it on the news? What does a guilty man look like? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have this connotation of what a guilty man looks like. But, you know, there's a lot of people that would fit that description that aren't necessarily guilty. So it makes you kind of go, ooh, maybe that's not what a guilty man looks like. And then it just really calls your attention. There's a lot of questions in the show that really just call your attention into, you know, our, our justice system, the basis of our justice system hasn't changed a whole lot, if that makes sense. The law is the law is the law. But the way we've executed our justice system has changed. It's very biased. And that I mean, of, I would argue it's it's been biased the whole time. I mean, yes, but I mean, it's it's the system is designed to not be biased. I mean, we have that in the Miranda rights. You are innocent until proven but those guilty. didn't get added until the sixties. I understand, but I mean, you know, that that idea has always kind of been around in our justice system. The idea that you are innocent until we are when you went to trial, you you ha- the, the evidence had to be presented that you were guilty. You know. Uh, nine times out of ten, when you went to court, there had to be something brought to prove that you were guilty of a crime. The problem is, is it even now, it's not a matter of guilty by fact or anything. It's guilty in the court of public opinion, especially given the fact, because our justice system, the flaw and the imperfections of it make it so strong, is that you know, you're judged by a, a jury of your peers, and well, your peers are definitely the most unbiased people I could think of. You know, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> because they've never watched the news prior to a trial or something like that. And so in that, it's this play really asks those questions, uh, you know, how can we, if you're on a trial for your life, isn't it our job to put any plausible thing in front of people to make them think twice? And why do... For a reasonable doubt. Right, and why is it... Um, you know the 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 prosecution is going to paint them to look like this but explain to me what what this idea of guilt looks like this evil looks like explain to me why that 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 why does this man all of a sudden look that way he didn't look this way yesterday why does he look that way now what changed mm-hmm. and i thought that was really profound but i think that um this script does a good job of calling into ambiguity race in the scenario it does not do a good job of having ambiguity between gender um because i think that in reading this and watching it you can tell the author's bias towards the male gender um which mammoth is known we're gonna get into this later for that but yeah but so this script is does a brilliant job questioning race and I think that it causes a lot of problematic um, questions on gender. Well, and I think one thing that it points out, and I'm hesitant to mention this because I don't know that I, 
I don't know if I'm the right person to be saying this, if that makes sense, but it Susan, who's of color, mm -hmm. fabricates the maid story. She drags up in. She helps the DA kind of create it. But that didn't get proven. Well, well but hold on. It, it doesn't have to. It creates reasonable doubt. Um, and it's the same thing that, that the defense that Jack and them are trying to do, which is create reasonable doubt. It's doubt. If you have any doubt that something happened, that's the ball game. But if the other side can put doubt on your claim, that's also the ball game. You know, it's math. They cancel each other out. She helped materialize this, right? And I feel like... Allegedly. Allegedly, but still, something was... I think what Mamet was trying to do is, for centuries, and even today, people of color are wrongly prosecuted and over-prosecuted for crimes which either they committed or they didn't commit. You know, I think a person of color is more likely to get a harsher sentence than a white person. And they're more likely to get convicted of something they didn't do, obviously. And I feel like it's kind of like, I don't know, her way of, I don't want to say revenge, but you know what I mean? She's trying to rectify it yeah, by doing it, that. It almost comes back like when we saw Twilight. Like restitution. 1992. Um, not that, I'm sorry, not that play. When we were talking, to, when, when we saw that show on National Geographic about the 90s, and they were talking about the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm -hmm. And everybody pretty much thought he was guilty of sin, but he got off. And a lot of people in the African-American community were overjoyed about it. And a lot of people thought... It was restitution for, for Rodney Ro King. Exactly. And it was like, I don't think that's how the justice system should work. Two wrongs don't make a right. You know, that's, you know, mm -hmm. you, 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 you're, you're... Your ethnicity or your culture or your people might have been wrong, but wronging someone else doesn't make it right. And I almost feel like, and again, I don't know that I'm the right person to be saying this, but, you know, that's that's how it kind of came off to me. That's where they were hitting the race mark for me, where I was like, ooh. Well, and I do think that a lot of the questions posed about race were very thought-provoking and very, you know, like, what does a guilty man look like? Um, but also being a woman... Um, the, the thought process on how they got there and the device definitely comes off as victim shaming and justifying victim shaming to serve your own purpose, which we could get into a whole nother discussion about We that. already and got so, into a discussion when we were putting this together. I mean, right. it was an hour long discussion. But so but. that's, that's where some of the show just didn't quite hit for me because there really was that gender bias, and I think that there could be a better vehicle for that without victim shaming. Well, the other thing that I appreciated was the exploration of um, all the facts, not settling for just what was on the surface, but really delving deep. Because even though they were good friends that wasn't good enough for Jack. And he really wanted to delve in and he wanted to get everything because he's like, I can win this case. I know I can win this case. I know how to win this case. But he wanted what was right. Mm -hmm. And I felt like Jack was the true North Star in this. He was a good guy in regards to race and whatnot, right? He didn't have any racial bias and he was coming up with the plausible what ifs, what ifs. And if you remember, 
when we had this discussion, they were saying um, she was enjoying the consensual sex. But then he yelled out a, the N-word during it. And that went, that didn't come out until the second day when all of a sudden Strickland wanted to do the press conference. And that's when Jack was like, wait a minute, hold on. You called her a what? And he's like, but she wanted me to. It was in the middle of passion. And he goes, no, 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 no. You called her a what? Mm-hmm. This changes the game. And in that moment, I was like, if you hadn't del- delved deeper into this and you hadn't found that, it doesn't matter. I, I don't know. There, I've got like those five words that you never say. It doesn't matter. And that word is on it. I can't think of a moment where you should ever say that word. And the fact that he said it, I was like, you have that in your vocabulary. You have that ability to say that word. You know what that word is tied to, especially as a white man. In the South. In the South. This isn't, you know, you know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, we're, I think in the beginning of the play, we were like, I think he might have been falsely accused. You swayed completely the other way and you went, oh, hold on a minute. And it may, and that's when the, the maid thing surfaced and you're like, maybe this is plausible. Well, and I think um, one of the things I struggle with with Mammoth plays is this definitely has created the ideal white character to be a who's perfect and free of racial prejudice you know and because if you look at it him if you look at the character of jack he is very in-depth he is very colorful he is trying you know basically he's there to relieve white fragility and say no 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 look i'm a good guy whereas if you look at his partner henry brown and susan they're kind of painted in a two-dimensional light to be a sounding board. Well, I think that uh, Jack, right, Jack? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm trying to keep names right. Jack is not the perfect white person because I think he's a perfect white man for people of color male. I think he's not perfect for women. And we'll get into that later regarding Mamet and the way he writes about women because I think his interaction with men is what ideally we would want. But the interaction with women. But from a but from a white perspective, not a black perspective. Yes, yeah. But if I don't, I don't, a, I don't, I don't have the black perspective. That right, that's the thing. But the, the thing I want to say about that is, in a community where we're talking about race, the loudest people in the room need to be those that are oppressed, not those that are woke. But I also say I don't think Mamet has a black voice either, considering he's not black. No, he's not. So I would be interested to see what a person of color playwright could do with the same play. What they would do. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. But we're getting off topic. Moving on. Let's break things down a little bit more. So the set. I thought it was beautifully detailed. I mean, Santo does an amazing job. It's almost (laughs) like you work with him. Uh, It was a beautifully detailed, old-fashioned set. Uh, Old-fashioned set. Old-fashioned office. Uh, A really great use of that space. Because the Barrymore Theater is a really big stage. Um... There was lots of wood. And this is going to... Follow me on this lot. Come come hop on my magic dragon and follow me for a moment. Um, the set was tons of wood. The floor was wood. The desks were wood. The walls were wood. Um, and I really appreciated it. And it just made me think. And, and, and as I was looking at pictures and I was remembering, just follow me, it made me think of fire. And I guess, you know, fire, burning. I'm thinking guilty, like the witches at the stake. 
know, maybe mm-hmm. there's something there. But I don't know if that was the intention. But like as I was knowing the play now and looking at pictures at the set and that, I was like, I don't know why, but this just makes me think of fire. There's so much wood. It's just kindling, you know. It's just waiting for that spark. And I feel like this play was a slow burn until the end. And I feel like once the spark is done, boom, we're off to the races. I could get that. Um, Moving on to the costumes, I love an old-fashioned suit. I love a three-piece suit with the vest when they take the jackets off. I love it. West Wing, season six through eight, when President Bartlett's in his three-piece suit. I'm just like, God, I want to wear a three-piece suit. So I love a good three-piece suit. I'm a sucker for it. Um... All the costumes just look like... Uh, the other thing is they made the actors look hot. All the actors just looked hot. Like temperature-wise. Yeah, not... yeah, yeah. Not like... But like yeah. hot. Like It it was already summer in New York and humid, but it, and, and they're under these stage lights, but they just looked like they were sweating up a storm. And I think that added to the fever of the words and the theme of the show. I mean, like you said, we're in the South, but it's like temperature's already high kind of thing and now we've got these these gorgeous costumes but for some reason everyone just looks uncomfortable i mean yeah if that makes sense i'm not saying that the costumes made the actors feel uncomfortable but if that makes i'm not sure if i'm making any cognitive sense but um lights i remember them being brightish and hot right Mm-hmm. But also, we were in the first row when we saw it, too. Yeah, yeah. And adding to the feel of the fever of the show, um, when the accused man was on stage, I remember it felt like he was being interrogated. Yes. Where he sat, the light just seemed to be really hard on him, and it had that interrogation feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't like a film noir where like things were smoky and dim lit. It was just very bright, very... I don't know. It was like in your face. Like they wanted to, they wanted everything they were saying to be exposed and brought to light. Yeah. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, I want to speak on the direction. So I really appreciated the pace at which the show was going. I liked the speed of the exchange of lines. I liked the desperation and pleading amongst the characters. It kept your heart rate up and it kept you guessing about what would come next. The anticipation really just left you feeling anxious in the best way possible. Which I definitely think can be attributed to the director being the playwright as well. Yes. Because, I mean, there are directors who do fantastic things with work, but when you have a director who is directing his um, his own written work, um, you get the pacing becomes a little bit more... Um, it, it, he already like, has it in his mind. Exactly. Yeah, he he knows it. exactly what he wants. But it just... it. The exchanges where they would really just rapid fire but then slow down. Everything just felt exactly right. And all, all those natural breaths and highs and lows just came there. And so you really rode that wave. The show has had several notable performers, including James Spader, David Allen Greer, Carrie Washington, Richard Thomas, Dennis Haysbert, and Eddie Izzard.
So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. So as for theatrical impact, um, it's another great mammoth work. You know, David Mamet has created several fantastic works for the He theater. is a Pulitzer Prize winner. Yep. And, um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Um, I think the question I would want to pose to you is, what is, a, what is it about it that makes it great? I, I think the subject matter, the way that it challenges the audience both in and outside the theater. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't realize that I had this experience then, but I do remember um, when I worked Sweat and I remember seeing audiences leave the theater with more questions than answers. I remember audiences leaving the theater and they didn't feel comforted. Or I remember particularly this older couple left and the husband's like, I just didn't get it. Like it just didn't, and the wife just turns him and she's like, because it wasn't for you, Dale. And I was just like... (laughs) Oh my God, yes. Not every theater show is for a particular audience. I I hadn't remembered this until we started talking about the show, but I remember us both enjoying the show when we saw it, and then as soon as I started reading it and discussing it, I was like, oh wait, I remember us getting into a couple of heated arguments after the show. (laughs) And 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 rereading it and and rereading it, um, you know, I was like, oh, more knowledgeable feminist me is like, mm, okay, we this play definitely addresses the issue of race well, and it and it speaks about the issue of race. It, it starts the dialogue of race well. However, there's these other issues that it definitely makes you go ooh. So then it makes you one of the things that I did not put in here is that this is a great vessel for. Issues like race and feminism, that because I wouldn't refer to this and go, Hey, you want to talk about race in the theater and that? This isn't the first show that I'd go to because I'm like, Yeah, this addresses race and starts a dialogue, but it is it the most productive conversation? Exactly, you could address it, could cause more problems to address than solutions. Mm-hmm. So, um, also in doing research for the show, uh, Mammoth's style of writing dialogue, marked by cynical street smart edge, precisely crafted for effect, is so distinctive that it has become uh, known to be called Mammoth speak. Um, which I didn't realize that they had they had kind of coined a term for it, but mm-hmm. it really makes sense once you read it and then you start reading some of his other works. Um, mm-hmm. That there is this kind of Mammoth speak that is that. Um, rapid, not rapid fire, but like that back and forth of dialogue uh-huh. um, that he has created. And um, one of the things that Mamet said himself, as far as um, criticizing his tenant, his writing, is that other writers have a tendency to write pretty at the expense of sound and logical plots. So, um, in hearing a little bit more about his life and knowing how politically active he is, it makes more sense why his um, characters tend to have a little bit more of a dynamic, rapid fire mm-hmm. cross. Like, a lot more punch to it. Yes. Yeah. And and Mammoth Speak is another theatrical impact I think about this show and that this this playwright's given us. Um, I mentioned that this challenges the audience and and their beliefs on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Also, um, this play is one of three that is considered a critique on the state of the nation um, that Mamet did. And also, during this time, this was the second of the three um, where he starts to make a shift from being a more 
um, liberal-minded uh, artist to a more conservative, uh, political, active um, artist. Um, and the other two shows that we are talking about when I say they're one of three is November and the anarchist great show plays to read by the way Nathan Lane in November and I believe if I remember right um, Peggy Lapone in the anarchist so on the societal impact I felt like it was a mirror to society in which we can see what we want to be reflected because it's controversial dialogue and subject matter yeah you know and more importantly for the time that this show was done. I don't know necessarily now. I don't think it's as reflective now, for sure. But I think at that time, back in 2010, um, it definitely caused conflicting interpretation between the sexes. Oh, 100%. There's a couple of different articles I found um, talking about couples leaving the theater arguing. <laughs> Shocking. I don't think we were one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that was the intent either. But... Hey, that's good theater. Makes you ask questions and whatnot. Uh, speaking of which, this uh, asks a lot of important questions. Again, what does a guilty man look like? I thought that was really profound. It really began addressing and asking questions regarding systemic racism and the subject of race long before it was mainstreamed and popularized in our modern way. You and know, I'm thinking like social media and then like, you know, cable TV and that before, before, I mean, systemic racism has always existed, but before we were using it like a pop culture term, mm -hmm. this play was starting to be like, hey... Right. Well, and I, I mean, it did put forward some questions on systemic racism, but not in a proactive way that we would hear had it been from someone uh, of color who had written it. Yes. Um, and it more definitely came from a way of white people trying to ease guilt, like I was talking about white fragility. Yes. Um, you know, and so that is something that you have to keep in mind because... The other thing, when you are getting into the subject of race and whatnot, you get into the dichotomy of the matrix of domination, which you ha if you haven't read that article, um, you really need to um, read it. But basically, it talks about at any given moment, um, we are all um, on varying levels of being both oppressed and being the oppressor um, because their intersectionality exists on every single plane. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's no 100% good and 100% evil. There's no 100%, you know, oppressed and 100% oppressor. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, even thinking about this, um, yeah, I think this show goes to show like, oh, there's bad white people, but the Jack is a redeeming white character. See, white people can be good. And it, it is very, like, I don't know, modern? I don't want to say modern Jim Crow, but you know what I mean? Like, giving white people that comfort of, see, we are, there are some good people of us out there. It's okay. We're all good. And, and it's, it's like, like, no, no, don't, no. Don't make, I don't need you to make me feel good. I, right, we, it's, it's actually better that you don't feel good Yeah, we it. need to sit in our chair for a while and feel bad because we've done some bad things, you right. know? Right, well, and uh, just as a side note, the Matrix of Domination was uh, was a concept or a theory that was coined by Patricia Hill Collins, um, which, black feminist, woohoo, I believe she was at Stanford when she wrote this paper. Mm, um, <laughs> but um, I think that that's something that's very important to keep in mind when we are having these conversations of mm -hmm. race, especially as those of us who are white and we tend to be used to making our voices the loudest in the room. Um, you know, and that's not saying, you know, 
I mean, like, feel your feelings, but just pay attention if you're talking about something that is, you know, about someone that, or about something that you have no experience with, your voice probably shouldn't be the loudest. And I really appreciate that because I can't tell you how many people I've seen, and this isn't just about race, but just anything that, I mean, recently I've seen people criticizing certain shows that exist, and they're like, why aren't there people of color more in the show? Da, 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 da. But then you see the people of color groups that aren't criticizing it. I'm like, you don't need to stand up for certain people right now. They have the ability to stand on their own. Well, and as You don't need to fight other people's battles unless they ask you to. Well, and as white people, we should help use our privilege to raise up the voices, but that does not mean that we should be the loudest voice. Exactly. It should be, we should be a platform of, you know, it'd be in this in, in a crowded room where you hear someone of color saying like, hey, maybe we shouldn't say that, and you being like, hey, this person has something to say. Exactly, rather than being like, oh, this is wrong. You know, and the people of color was like, I didn't say that. Well, no, 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 but I know that this is what you want. Let me tell you what you want. Let me tell you what you think. And it's like, no, you need to do less talking and let the other, let do the other group in the room tell you what you should be saying, mm-hmm. what you should be doing. Something else I want to mention is the theme of the show is race and the lies we tell ourselves around them, around it. Um, you know, because racism is definitely a heavy topic. As it should be. Um, And I think that, you know, this does do a good job of, you know, yeah, here's race and here are some of the lies we tell ourselves. Like that, you know, you have the universally good white guy at its center. Um, But I think that um, something else we need to note about this show is the... White characters are fully realized in their script writing, in their character, um, whereas the black people in this story more are more two-dimensional, like I mentioned earlier, and they are used more as soundboards for questions of race rather than being the source of the question of what it means to be black in America, which if you're talking about racism, I think that that is the more important subject. Mm-hmm. I agree. So is the show relevant? So, (laughs) okay, so full disclosure, welcome to the stage whisper backstage. Um, With Hope running a Broadway show, um, we're a little bit on opposite schedule, so I tend to write up a script, I send it to her, she adds her thoughts and edits, she sends it back, and we don't like do a rehearsal run. First time we kind of read through it is as we record. So you get real live first-hand dialogue so it, I wrote my thoughts on that the show is so relevant many moons ago and while we've been recording and discussing I've actually changed my mind about what I wrote so I originally <laughs> had written like yeah I think as long as issues exist I think the show is relevant now in hindsight like discussing the show rereading the show and everything I'm like well I don't know the issue some of the issues of the show addresses are great. I think David Mamet's work is like his writing is always brilliant. But I think there are better vessels of which to get the message across. I so I don't know that that this work necessarily needs to be revived or it's the right time or the right place or even the right work. You know, not every show needs to be redone. Um, I think it's a great work, but 
it's a hard sell for me, at least on Broadway. Regionally or community theaters, maybe. But again, it's a t it's a twelve year old work, and a lot has changed in our world in twelve years. And I just feel like there's just as many issues that can come from it as problems that it solves. Mm -hmm. I hope I I make it. I'm making sense. I feel like I'm worried that now we're just like losing listeners up to right because they're like, <laughs> oh, this is offensive. But I, I mean, listen. You're, the, the show is not a taco. There's no show that's a taco that well, makes everyone happy. But I mean, you can't, you can't address and solve one problem and start a fire on the other end and be like, oh, look, I'm a good show. And it's like, well, no, that doesn't work that way. And there are some shows that just don't age well. Like for its time, maybe this was the thought-provoking piece of theater that we needed because what other shows were talking about race. Yeah. But now that we're 12 years down the line, we've had a lot of different events happen. Absolutely. You know, what There's is... been some great, other great works that well, have dealt with that, that subject. I mean, I'm thinking like Slave Play, Skeleton Crew. I mean, there's a million more, and there's a lot more that it, about race that is by black voices. I was, that was exactly what I was about to say. I said, I think also when we discuss and deal with the subject of race, I think it's important that the people who actually deal with the subject need to be the ones to speak about the subject. I mean, we do deal with the subject as well, but I think those that experience the more negative end of it. Well, and that's what this is pointing out, you know. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, and that's kind of one thing I wanted to say about um, David Mamet is he, oh, yes. as a character in and of itself, <laughs> yes. is a controversial so, topic. David Mamet is a, we can agree, is a brilliant playwright. Mm -hmm. um, read his work. It really is. He's written some fantastic, fantastic plays. David Mamet, the person, everyone has the right to believe what they want to believe. Absolutely. Nowhere in our show are you going to find us being like, you know... You have to believe this. And no, you no, have no, no, no. You can that. believe what you want. We don't have to agree with you. That's what's great about... Uh, well, since we are listening around the world, that's what's great about our country. Like, you know, we, we respect all views. We don't agree with all views. I mean, there are a few out there that were like, you yeah, know, go away, please. But that being said, David Mamet, the person, uh, has definitely gone a little way off the deep end for a lot of people, particularly in the theater's view. Um, well, and I think one of the things that has really just come out about him that um, I didn't realize until I started reading articles about his work, Alana, or whatever it is, um, he, he's very misogynistic. Yeah. And he kind of always has been, but because of his previous plays the subject matter didn't really give it an opportunity to make it very mm -hmm. forward and present until we started getting into the era uh, in which he wrote race. Yeah. And I mean, Elena or Alana, I, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, came out in 1997, um, which is about a um, female student accusing her professor of rape. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of where you start to see these, his ideologies, which, you know, it's fine. Like, believe what you're going to believe, but I just, I don't, I don't agree with misogyny. No, and I, I don't and think it, misogyny has a place, in my opinion. It, it, yeah, and so it's hard for me to get place. behind a author who, who writes from that perspective. Well, and he went hard right, he went hard Trump supporting all the views that came with it. And, you know, again, you can be a very conservative point of view, but when your views support hate and that, you can expect that people around you probably won't support you. Yeah. 
And so, so I think for that reason, because I personally believe you can't separate the person from the playwright. Yes. That that's the main reason why we shouldn't be doing this play because it's not the best vehicle from the best. Yeah, uh, you voice. can't. You can't. You can't give a megaphone to something like that. You can't, and you can't separate the playwright from the person. I agree. And we had this long discussion last night, too, about this, because I was like, man, it's well, such this... a great playwright. And then you were bringing that up, and I was like, oh, I forgot all about that. <laughs> right. And, I mean, this all hadn't happened in 2010 either, because, no. you know, people change and progress over Donald time. Donald Trump hadn't happened. The Harvey Weinstein thing hadn't happened. All I mean, they were happening. But you know what I mean? Like the, the, they the hadn't everything. come to public life. Yeah. And so, I mean, you all your actions have consequences. consequences and, you know... And that's, I th- that's the side that he fell on, and boy, did he fall on it, you know. And right, so. and, that's, and that's why I think that, you know, at the time we saw the show, there were some really fantastic moments about it. But going from where we are now, I don't think that this is a work that needs to be produced. I think that's important for people to know about it, that it exists and where it falls into mm-hmm. history. Um, but that being said, I don't think it's something that needs to be put on a pedestal. No. We wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show back in 2010. And the scene we did at the beginning is kind of how we went and saw the show. Yeah, so I mean, if you listen to our previous episode um, on American Idiot, you you heard the story about how we met Eddie Izzard after American Idiot and got his autograph and then he was like, you need to come see our show, or my show. And uh, he told us, you know, I'm in race and so that's kind of where it picked up. After he left, we were like, ah, I'm going to go get tickets. So we did. We we were both in college at this time. And so we did a student rush, and we ended up getting front, front row, row center tickets. And I've never seen a Broadway show. For $10. Show. Yeah, never seen a Broadway show front row center. So getting spit on by Eddie Izzard and Dennis Haysbert, you know. Back in the pre-COVID days, so, you know, no fear. <laughs> right. Uh, the other thing I want to say really fast, just that has nothing to do with this show, that has everything to do with Eddie Izzard, um, she is a fantastic performer. And you'll notice that we use a lot of intertwining pronouns with them. And if you look up information about Eddie Izzard, she prefers she, them pronouns, but will totally respond to he her, them, whatever pronouns you want, which I just think is just fantastic. Yeah. So if you hear us saying all these different pronouns, that's why. So like we mentioned, we saw Eddie Izzard in the show, which was brilliant. We also saw Dennis Haysbert. Which and is the Allstate voice I was going to say, if you're wondering who Dennis Haysbert is, and you're like, I don't know that name. Yes, you do. He was in 24. He's the Allstate, you know, where you were protecting a good hands. Yeah. Um, they were great. They really, I mean... It was so cool to see these guys on stage and to just see them acting. It was amazing. And see their feel their interactions together. Yeah. Was the, really the, great. the fact that all I knew about Eddie Izzard was that he was a comedian and then Dennis Haysbert, I was just like, Oh, you're an all state commercial guy. Okay. But then seeing him <laughs> on the stage, I was like, 
whoa, <laughs> you guys are really good. You know, and again, yeah, I'm still young, naive. It's 2010, so I'm Listen, not the old. we've made a man. lot of growth since 2010, folks. Yeah, you know, I got a degree now. Um, <laughs> then after the show, we got to meet Eddie Izzard again, and, and, and she remembered us, which was really, really cool. And, you know, she signed our playbills. Um, but what was really cool is, and this is going to sound dorky, but you got youngins, you got to follow us. Well, here. this is still when we had cameras to, that we took pictures, not well, cell no, phones. Well, no, no, no. It was a cell phone. Uh-uh, oh, was, no, no. It was a cell phone. It was, it was a camera. It was a camera. It's not on your phone. It was on my little one that was around my wrist because all of our photos oh, were taken from right, the camera right, around right, my you're wrist. Right, you're right. Okay. So, camera. <laughs> and I, at this time, I would ask, can I get a picture with you? And Hope would take the picture because she doesn't like getting pictures of people. Well, I didn't. And she goes, why don't we get a picture of all three of us? Okay. This is the original selfie, kiddos. Before you use your phone and selfie. No. You had to do it on a digital camera. And we're all leaning back and we're holding it. And I'll, I'll find the picture and I will post it on our on our social medias there. But it took us three or four pictures to finally get it right. But we got it right. And <laughs> it was cool. And so, like, I remember just, like, every now and then that'll pop up. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, we took a selfie. Like, five years before the selfie existed. Without a selfie stick. I mean, listen, it used to be if you wanted to take a picture of yourself, you know, you'd have someone else take it, or you'd use the mirror to take a picture uh, of yourself. Or you'd, like, put it somewhere, and you run away on the timer, and you'd, like, awkward smile. Yeah, like, people, the concept of holding the camera up and away and then tapping was not something we did. And no. now, looking back, I'm like, why didn't we? But it's fine. And then Don't worry about it. And then your picture developed, you had to look in the yellow pages and find one. Dad, <laughs> we're dating ourselves. No, yeah, it, was, it was a great experience, and I hope we get to see Eddie Azar on stage sometime soon. We continue to join others in returning to theater all over and hope to be seated next to you at a performance soon. Maybe you'll be able to catch race at a theater near you sometime soon. As winter begins to turn to spring and the cold frost begins to thaw around the Great White Way, we'd like to remind our listeners that Broadway is indeed open. We'd also like to begin to point out that many new shows will start their preview soon, but a few have already officially opened. So we'd like to wish a happy opening to the cast and crew of Manhattan Theatre Company's production of Skeleton Crew, which officially opened on January 26th and is now playing at the Samuel J. Friedman Theatre. And happy opening to the King of Pop, which has taken up residency at the Neil Simon Theatre. MJ the Musical opens on February 1st. Also, in celebration of Black History Month, be sure to check out our social media every Wednesday and Friday. There we will be posting information about a different influential black theater artist who has helped to change and shape the theater world as we know it. Please join us in celebrating and shining a light onto the diversity that makes our community so unique and beautiful. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by David Munford, Evan Schaefer, Jazzar, John Bartman, and Billy Murray. <laughs>